0: Good morning and welcome to Tuesday Breakfast. It's 7am on Tuesday the 3rd of January and I'm Carnegie, your host for today's summer programming show, the first one for 2023. From the 27th of December 2022 to the 10th of January, Tuesday Breakfast will be revisiting highlights from 2022 and we'll be back with live shows from the 17th of January, 2023. We had some spectacular guests join us on Tuesday breakfast all through 2022. The conversations I've chosen to revisit for today's show all focus on race and will explore racism in the workplace, emerging black literature and speculative fiction, how race and identity affect art and belonging, and the importance of race and class during elections. We start with an interview I did in March twenty twenty two with Doctor Virginia Mapitzahama, a critical race scholar and director of member education at Diversity Council Australia about their report Racism at Work. Doctor Virginia is from the Diversity Council Australia, which is an independent, not for profit body who provides research, events and programs curated resources and advice to a community of member organizations uh she is also a scholar in critical race gender and intersectional feminism and her research focuses on understanding the social construction of all categories of difference in the context of migration diaspora race racism and ethnicity um welcome to the show today dr Mapedama.
4: thank you thank you for having me
0: thank you so much for being here so uh, yesterday, the um, DCA released a report um, which looks into racism in the Australian workplace. Can you just start us off by giving us a little bit of background on the project that led to this report?
4: Okay, thank you. Uh, thank you. So, um, well, actually, this, this report was really, um, I guess, the impetus for it was um, request from our members who were coming to us in the context of all, you know, all the global events that happened in 2020, which were, which were fueled by, um, George Floyd's death in the U.S. Mm-hmm. And that, um, kind of gave momentum again, again to the Black Lives Matter movement. And, um, within that movement, there were like lots of calls for, um, organizations to do better. Um, you know, and really address racism and racial inequalities within organization, organizations because um that's where racism kind of plays out the most, like racial inequalities, mm. um, you know, economic inequalities due to racism play, play out the most within the context of organizations. So uh, we found that our members um, were coming to us and um, asking, well, look, we want to do better, but how do we do it? Because, um, we can't find anything in Australia. So as DCR, we, um, uh, sorry, as DCA, we, um, went around, did what we do best, which is do research. We looked around, trying to find for, um, trying to find an organizational tool that, um, Australian specific, that looks at our, um, uh, specific Australian, um, context, our history. Um, and we couldn't find anything. So what we did was, okay, we thought we will actually need to develop um, an evidence-based tool that's specific to Australia that can guide organizations on how to deal with racism. Because what we were finding as well was there's quite a bit of stuff in Australia on cultural diversity and cultural inclusion in in workplaces and cultural competence and um, that kind of stuff. And while that stuff is really important in its own right? It's, it's very good. We need to kind of focus on that because cultural diversity is an area of diversity that we need to focus on. But, if, but to look at it in order to address racism, it's not the correct entry point. We can't use culture as an entry point to talk about or to discuss racism because it doesn't work because culture isn't the same thing as race. And so what we thought was we needed to come up with with an evidence-based tool that specifically talks about race and racism because if we want to talk about racism, we've got to talk about racism and not culture and not, um, you know, harmony or social cohesion or any of those um, other things that we tend to focus on a lot in Australia. And not that there's anything wrong with those things. Uh, Like I said, we just need to focus on race and racism if we want to talk about racism. So that's what we did. And we came up with this um, report.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And I think that that point is actually super important that the language around how we discuss this, especially within the workplace uses kind of more, uh, passive vague terms you know like uh-huh. like cultural diversity and you know at the end of the day is that more harmful than good because you, you're kind of not you're taking the onus off racism
5: uh-huh. Uh-huh.
0: Yeah. So Correct. I, yeah i think that's that's really really um great that this report has kind of highlighted that um another really great thing that this report has highlighted is the importance of talking about anti-racism versus non-racism, um, which sort of differentiates passive attitudes against the general concept of racism versus more deliberate action. Can you tell us a bit more about what anti-racism work can look like?
4: absolutely so yes and you you bring up a very important point because another thing that we found um in our in our research as well is that we tend people tend to kind of confuse or conflate non racism with anti racism and like you said non racism tends to be that passive kind of the passive recognition of um yes racism exists um and it needs to be and it might need even um be aware that yes it exists and it needs to be eliminated and even know what it looks like right but it doesn't do anything and we're not saying again that, that there's anything wrong with that what we're simply saying is that it's a good starting point we can start there but we need to do something else so anti-racism Um, is an actual actively like choosing to say, Hey, we see racism and we're actively standing up for it. We're actually challenging it. And in racism, in in workplaces, it can take various uh, forms. There's quite a lot of things that we can do. And the first thing really is literally just that making that deliberate conscious, um, you know, choice to say, We are actually acting against racism, we're choosing to eliminate racism, we're putting it on the table, right? Here it is on the table, because that's what we we were hearing from our survey as well. People saying, well, racism is not even on anybody's table. It's not on anybody's agenda. So taking that conscious effort as organizations to say, we see it, we are hearing from people who experience it, that it's happening in organizations, and we're putting it on the table. So making that conscious act, uh, choice to act. The other thing is um, creating that racially conscious mind. Mm-hmm. So really taking, as we do in our report, taking racism as the point of entry for addressing racial in- inequality. So actually saying we are talking about racism here. We understand there's all these other things. There's bullying. There's, um, you know, there's, there's. Other forms of um, diversity that we need to focus on. There's, you know, like we said, culture. Everything. It's all there. But we're developing a racially conscious mind. We're actually addressing racial inequality and not, um, and, and like, as a as a thing as an entity in you know, and of its own right. And also the other thing um, that anti-racism um, can look like in organization is actually taking accountability. So organizations kind of going, we are accountable. We are responsible for doing this. Again, you put it, then you put it on the table. Um, for individuals and in organizations, anti-racism can start with that reflective process. Um, and I actually call it reflexivity rather than just reflect, re- being reflective because reflexivity is that kind of next-level reflection, which is not just... Again, it's not just passive kind of like looking at a moment in time and kind of going, what happened there? Reflexivity is really being very critical what is my own part? What part do I play mm-hmm. in this system of racism? And so it's really kind of really taking an, again, an active self assessment. So this becomes part of, um, you know, our psyche, part of the organizational psyche to kind of think, what is my part in all of this, right? So being very reflexive. I think most importantly, what anti racism in organizations looks like is that it takes um, it takes kind of systemic racism also as its starting point. So, again, another thing that we found in our work was that a lot of the times um, race people kind of stop at interpersonal forms of racism. So that racism that happens um, between people, you know, like when someone calls someone somebody else a racial slur, you know, that's the kind of racism we're still mm. looking for in organizations. But a lot of the times it's actually racism is, is systemic, Really embedded in uh, policies and practices and procedures, those things that we don't see. Anti-racism looks at all of that. It looks to kind of say, racism is embedded in all in all of this in our systems, in which which and policies which may look like they're racially neutral, right? So, so like um, this applies to everybody. And it in practice, when you actually look at it, some of the policies don't ac- actually apply to everybody equally because when you, ap- when you apply to everybody, they can actually be discriminatory. So anti-racism actually looks at that as well, that systemic nature of racism.
0: Absolutely. I mean, you know, I've definitely experienced that sort of subtle uh systemic racism that exists in workplaces here. And it is... Absolutely crucial for accountability on an kind of individual level as well as organizational level for, Mm. Mm. you know, any real change to actually, actually happen. Um, The report also found that, you know, candidates are more likely to be hired if they have Western sounding names or Australian accents. And that, you know, quote unquote, typically Western traits and kind of leadership styles like extroversion and confidence are more valued by managers. Is Mm -hmm. this because, you know, we still view whiteness and white culture as the default?
4: Yeah, um, well, this is, I mean, the research shows us this, right? Like, like, um, even in Australia, we've done research. There's several pieces of research that show this, that um, looked at, um, sent out, like, several, uh, you know, TVs, exactly the same thing, um, and just tweaked a bit, just the names. Um, and found that, um, like you're saying, that people with um, Anglo sounding names, with white sounding names, um, they got a lot more, um, you know, the, 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 they were invited to interviews at a higher rate than people with um, non Anglo sounding names. So, this is something that, that's real that the research is showing us is happening. Um, and again, like you're saying, the core of all of this is whiteness. Um, and, but in Australia, we don't tend to kind of talk about those things like whiteness seems to be um this invisible thing that we don't we're not actually conscious about it and that's how whiteness works in general anyway it's invisibility that it's not something that we talk about um um at all and yet it actually impacts um even our our racial psyche our unconsciousness that it tends to be as you said um when it comes to hiring managers, it might not even be a conscious thing, right? It can mm-hmm. be something that you're just like, well, I don't know, you know, my pizza, my what's that, right? Like, like, where is that coming from? Um, and so you find, you find, unlike you, I have gone into interviews where my the response has been, well, you're not a cultural fit to the organization. Mm-hmm. And then you ask, well, um what does that even mean? Like what does what cultural fit? Can you explain to me what you actually mean by that? So that's the other thing that we're talking about. Um, you know, the um, you know, the the language but also the policies when that's said to someone of of color to a person of colour, you're not a cultural fit because you um you know, to you you experience that as something that's um racist. Uh, Especially if someone can't actually explain to you why you're not a cultural fit, and that's if you get to the interview stage, but a lot of the times you find you're actually even being discriminated and at that um um you know at that first stage western sounding names um there tends to be um preference for people with like no discernible religious or cultural backgrounds, so mm-hmm. that neutrality again is what they're looking for there tends to be. Um, people who um, can self-promote in interviews again, which is a, an aspect of whiteness that doesn't necessarily exist in other cultures or other races. That um, people can, you know what I mean? Like people can come to the um, to the interview and they can do that kind of self-promotion. So we found that there's this kind of like you're not like us, implicit things happening, and the not like us is really you're not white like us.
0: Mm. Yeah, absolutely. Unfortunately, it's something a lot of uh, people of color living here and working here are quite familiar with. Um, So what changes are you hoping to see from following this research and from this report?
4: Right. Um, Well, we're hoping that this report, at least conversation like this is our whole if we at least start the conversations about racism in Australian organizations then I think we've we we're all on our way to really uh, um, getting change so like you said our report uses the language of race and racism mm-hmm. and we're hoping to kind of at some point <laughs> um, getting that to be mainstream right right so we we this the same way that we talk about cultural diversity, that we can start to talk about racial diversity and we understand the differences. Yes, they have overlaps and yes, they, um, um, you know, they may have some things in common, like someone can be racially diverse and culturally diverse, but some people can be racially diverse, but not culturally diverse, mm. right? Because they've grown up in Australia, they speak only English, et cetera, et cetera. So um, we, we, we are hoping that all of those changes can start to happen because this report has put racism on the on the agenda in Australian organisations, and we're also taking our specific Australian context. Um, with this report so we're hoping that organizations will see it they can recognize what we're talking about and they're not going to kind of go you know sometimes you pick up this thing from the from North America or from the UK and you're like okay this makes sense but this is not what we do in Australia so we're hoping that when people pick up our report when our um, our members are reading the report they can kind of see themselves in the report in the way that this is very australian specific one of the things that we we kind of throughout our report, there's two main things. One of them is racial literacy, that if you look at the front of our report, we really set up um, the report by in- introducing some of these concepts that speak to race, that speak to racism, we introduce the language, and we do so at a very accessible level. So people can start to kind of be um, comfortable as, as much as we can, be comfortable with using that language, be comfortable with... Um, and then once we do that, we can... We're increasing our racial literacy. So now we know what racism is. Now we know what racism can look like in organizations. And we start to move away from denying racism, from deflecting racism and all of those things. So we're we're hoping we start the conversations and people can start to take conscious efforts to increase their racial literacy within organizations and a way to increase racial literacy and a way to address racism. And I've said this This, this has been my life's work, trying to say, hey, we've got to listen to people with lived experiences mm. of racism. Let's listen to what they tell they're telling us about their experiences. Because once we do that, right, the narrative changes. The narrative becomes Ah, moves from, hey, racism is a very difficult concept to understand to, oh, hold on, we know what it looks like, hold on, we know what it, we, we, how we can address it because people with lived experiences, as you were saying, you have been through this in organizations as well. So if, organiz- if those organizations had come to you and said, hey, tell us about your experiences of racism, you would very clearly articulate that, isn't mm. it? Because you, you're going through it. So those are kind of like two, the two things that we emphasize, uh, um, building up racial literacy in organizations as a way to start understanding and addressing racism and in that process process sensing the experiences of people with um um with with um whose Experience who have experienced racism because they're the ones with the what we call it experiential expertise in our report um they have the experiential expertise on what racism looks like what it um you know how to address it and all of that kind of stuff um one of the things that i always say is if we really want to know about poverty right if we want to know what poverty feels like what it looks like and all and all of that stuff what do we do? We don't go to Elon Musk. We don't do that, do we? Like, no. He's not going to tell us what poverty looks like. Um, at least not in his current position um, as as a the, one of the richest people in the world. But we do go to people who are who are living in poverty, who we know, for example, may be experiencing homelessness, may be experiencing um, you know abject poverty. Um, they can tell us what poverty looks like, and we're very um, We're quick to do that, right? Like for other matters, for other subject matters. If we want to know about poverty, we'll go to people who are experiencing it. If we want to know about, you know, um, gender issues, we'll go to women. So we know that. But racism tends to be one of those issues where we shy away from going to people who are experiencing it. Or we kind of silence those voices. So uh, this is what we're hoping our report will, will, will do. We'll start those conversations.
0: Yeah. And I think, uh, what you've said about it being specifically Australian is also really important because, you know, I do see sometimes that frameworks from America or, you know, Europe or elsewhere are kind of just applied here and they don't necessarily work because Australia has a very specific history of colonization and violence against Aboriginal people and, mm-hmm. um, a very specific history of migration and what those different waves of migrants went through. So mm-hmm. um, the Australian mm-hmm. context is super important as well. So thank you Correct. for highlighting that. Um, where can our listeners go to find out more about the report?
4: Well, they can, they can go on, on our website. Um, there's a link on our website. And if they are members, they can go, go um, to our members' um, site and they can get access to the synopsis report and the full report. But for people who are not members, we do have an infographic that kind of gives an overview of what our report is is about. But we do encourage people to become members um, so they can um, get access to the full report and the synopsis report, as as well as other resources as well. We have a lot of other resources on our website that um, people can use in conjunction with this report to understand more and unpack what's going on with um, racism in workplaces.
0: Amazing. Um, Unfortunately, that's all we have time for this morning. But I just want to say thank you so much for joining us this morning and taking us through that um, and for the report as well that you've co-authored. So um, for anyone wanting to find out more, you can go to dca.org.au. Thank you for joining us this morning, Virginia.
4: Thank you very much for having me.
0: So that was Dr. Virginia Mapedzahama zahama talking to us about Diversity Council Australia's report into racism in the workplace.
6: It's summer programming on 3CR and there's so many reasons to stay tuned. Shorts, features, documentaries, new and unusual music and highlights from
0: 2022. To check out our summer grid, go to 3cr.org.au forward slash summer specials. Join the party! You're on 3CR Tuesday Breakfast. Next up, I'll be playing my favorite track from Little Sims' most recent album, No Thank You. This one is called Gorilla.
7: Pain tolerance, couldn't break us Pay homage if you respect how we came up Cool cool. Trying to get to the paper Hitting from Jamaica Might do me a favour True. True Big simmer, Dipping ten toes in that ice cold river Bank got bigger Been a different species Choosing a locker Been waiting to unleash these It's a no-show if you can't guarantee fees I ain't got one threat to consider Heaven and earth attached to one pillar Rest in peace to Mac Miller New sims drop to shake the whole shit up What's next? We'll be here for months talking about prospects Staying in my job, yes sir And rain is against her I'm ever resistant on my polyester Run through the jungle, they should have never let her Cuts some wounds, I hope never will fester Mmm yeah, big art collector, silent investor, film director Beating on my chest, going eight shit Putting in a grave shit Think like what you make it Yeah, it's... Stop flooding my mentions with bullshit, talking on sims that she's someone you went to school with. Awkward. From Dave been the cool kid, Raps starts hoping and faith from restoring. Yeah, it's about time. We got the just news for the work we put in over a decade in this bitch, you know. He never called another woman me a more. So I open up the way, and now he a door. Did it on a wave, I don't play, get you seasick. Charged up, fully bought up, I'm unleashed in. That was Little Sims with Gorilla.
1: 100 meters. 75 meters. 50 meters. 25 meters. 15 meters. 10 meters. grass fires move faster than you think how well do you know fire plan act survive go to vic.gov.au slash no fire authorized by the victorian government melbourne
0: a 3cr supporter you're on 3cr tuesday breakfast and you're listening to our summer programming show Next up, we'll be revisiting a conversation that I had in April 2022 when I had the pleasure of speaking with Jed Press founder, Hela Ibrahim. Hella Ibrahim is the founder and editorial director of Jed Press, an online publication that works exclusively with Black creatives and other creatives of color. Hella is on the show this morning to talk to us about the importance of developing and presenting new works by Black and POC creatives, and the recently released anthology of speculative fiction from 21 emerging first nations and black writers called Unlimited Futures. Welcome to the show, hello. Um maybe you can start by just telling us a little bit more about yourself and how you ended up um with creating Jetpress. Oh. <laughs>
2: that's a long story, so I'll keep it, you know, relatively short. Um so uh, I come from so, so, so I come from a publishing background, I w- a traditional publishing background, I would say. Um, and then after a while of working in publishing, you start to notice that there is a um, well, it's pretty white in there. Um, certainly, like certainly, there's a few things lacking in publishing. So um, I kind of started Jed Press as a way to address some of the issues I was coming across. And so it kind of functions as both a publishing space and an advocacy space, I guess, um, to talk about. And it's not just diversity is the thing. Oh, oh I hate that word. But, um, it, it's not just about like, you know, racial diversity. It's also about the fact that people in publishing are massively underpaid. Um, if they're paid at all, you know, there's, there's a lot of, there's, there's quite a few issues, I think, going on in there. That all, basically, that all basically work together to form, I guess, a barrier, like a huge barrier to access mm. for, for a lot of people. So Jade, Jade Press is a way to, I guess, try to address some of those issues.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Um, you mentioned, you know, it's a very white space, which it, of course, is. Um, and I feel like literature and literary fiction in general is often viewed as a white space sort of by default. Um, even though, you know, heaps of non-white cultures around the world have a rich history of fiction. Um, can you tell us a bit more about the history of black and POC literary fiction? <laughs> oh, gosh, I'm not actually, I would say I'm
2: not, I, I'm not enough of a historian to get into that, I would say. Also, I think it's just interesting the way you phrase that, because it's, um kind of, you know, it's it's not viewed as... It's like, actually, we're not taught about it at mm. all. Like, I couldn't tell you. I couldn't tell you a lot about the history of black and black and black writing in Australia because, like, we're not really... You know, Look at what we study in high school. Look at what we, you know, what gets... What books are made into movies and that kind of thing. And it's like, well, there's actually... You know, the history of black and brown writing goes back eons. Um, I was in a... I was doing a thing for Writers Victoria once. Um, and we had somebody, uh, somebody from some, a Persian background in there. And, um, yeah, just, you could kind of see from the conversation that, that it wasn't clear that, you know, to, to others in the class that Persia, like, writing from, from the Middle East and North Africa and from all over the place, really. But I'm going to talk about North Africa and the Middle East because that's what I know. Um, but, you know, we have, we have long, long histories of, of great writing. And, you know, there's an Egyptian uh, writer who won the Nobel Prize for, for literature. Um, they give my fours. And, it, you know, and, and there are there are lots of other, yeah, I don't know. I guess we're not taught a lot about it. And as far as Australia is concerned, there's like quite a few, like, you know, you could start listing names, like, of, of really well-known, um, black and black writers. Like, you know, you've got Tony Birch and, um, Anita, Sorry, I'm trying to hold back a cough right now. Dr. <laughs> um, Anita Heist and, like, you know, a lot of people who have been writing for a really long time. Mm-hmm. Um, although those two, those two, thankfully, people know about them. But I, this is the thing, like, I couldn't start, I couldn't even, it's such a wide topic, you know. Do we start talking about uh Audrey Lord? Do we start, uh, you know, do we go to America and black writing in America or do we go... You know, to the original, to the uh, origins of storytelling on this continent. You know, like long before the written word, mm-hmm. um, there was tradi- there was um, you know a tradition of oral storytelling that also exists in Africa, by the way. Um, although you know, in Egypt we had writing, but there's still strong oral traditions. Anyway, long stories <laughs> <laughs> ramble. Long ramble short. I just think it's 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 sad that we don't get taught a lot of these things in Australia, in an Australian context. We were still studying the same like I'm not going name any name any writers, but um, let's just say like oh I, I don't know i'm I'm quite over the whole Aussie surfer or coastal town, whatever kind of book, so yeah,
0: <laughs> absolutely, um it's interesting you you know talked about where do we go next like where do we look do we look to America like where do we go like I grew up in India not a white person in sight um, mm. and somehow I was still studying white books all through high school Um you know and, and now as an adult I find that it's one of my greatest pet peeves I, I look back and I'm like why on earth were we studying that <laughs>
2: <laughs> that is so interesting like even even in India, you're still studying, you know, the the white authors. That's and that's just wild because it's like I know India has a has a great like literary literary like yeah, background. Back, I guess is how I would put it. Like, and I barely know anything about it? Like, and even I know this, so I'm like, yeah, it is. I mean, co- uh, co- uh, colonialism and the British have a lot to. I mean, we won't look at just the British, like, you know, France has a lot to answer for and the Dutch. But, but yeah, it's just it's just interesting how that kind of history bleeds into, into today and into every facet of every, like, part of your life where it's just... 100%. And,
0: yeah. And just the way it was never even questioned and just put on a pedestal and that's just accepted. Um, mm. So, to me, it's, yeah, like, just incredible that Jed Press exists and is um, telling the stories that it is. Speaking of which, um, Unlimited Futures is an anthology of speculative fiction from 21 emerging First Nations and Black Writers. Tell us about speculative fiction and um, how this book came about.
2: Um, Sure. I am going to just start that with um, Rafis Ismail, who is uh, the managing director um, at Jed and who also is one of two editors on Unlimited Futures, um, along with Alan Van Nieven. Um But Rafif did uh, make a point on, on um, I think, Instagram and Twitter recently where we do want to um, kind of refocus the, the terminology around it. Through, it is an anthology of black and black writers. It is First Nations and black, but we um, we are trying to... I guess, use the terminology, you know, um, of like Afro-black and, and you know, First Nations black, um, just to avoid further erasure of blackness around that. Um, but in terms of how that came about, um, Rafif, uh, who is, as I mentioned, my managing co-director, um, basically for about a year and a half, so, uh, talked to me about, you know, came up to me once and was like, um, came up to me one day and was like, uh, You know, I've got this idea for a book. I'm thinking speculative fiction. And I'm like, I love speculative fiction. Yeah, like, you know, I'm on board. What do you need? Um, and just for for a while, would like, uh, you know, come to me every now and then be like, Okay, so here's an update. I'd be like, Yeah, yeah, sounds great. Sure, sure, sure. And then one was like, um, Oh, you know, we've got Fremantle Board on press with this idea. Uh, free mental press on board, um, and I was like, okay, so we're actually yeah, okay, I guess we're doing this book now. Um, so since it, yeah, opened up submissions and all of that, but it's basically this book came about um, through Ray's idea, but also just because like the, the, the I guess the background to that idea was the fact that there is um, a, you know I was gonna, you could say an opening in the market or something that or a niche, but basically there is a gap. Um, in terms of where where are black and black writers in in Australian publishing, like where we're not asked to talk about racism or we're not asked to talk about like you know justify your existence and why are you black or you know how does being black affect your life and we just wanted to move away from that kind of anthology because it's just it's I don't know about you or anyone else, but I'm like getting real, real sick of reading about racism. Like oh, I'm it every day. It's so, exhausting. But, yeah, right? It's exhausting. And I'm just like, I just don't want another book about it. Like I just don't want to read it. I don't want to put it out in the world. And we're like, the sort of fiction just worked really well as a genre to allow people to just write something without that burden, I guess. And writing lately has felt, um, I think, for a lot of creatives in this, you know, post COVID era where everyone's a little bit burnt out. And it's like, how do we come back to the you know, to 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 the joys of writing or to to writing something that actually makes us feel good, you know? Um so that's that's kind of how that book came about. And then yeah, like I said, Rafif actually did a lot of like I was there mainly just to support and to provide like, you know, extra an extra hand when it was needed. But Rafif and Alan Van Niven basically, yeah, um once Alan came on board they you know, we opened up the submissions, they went through them, all of that, you know, all the technical production-y stuff. Um, but really, yeah, really, it's just an anthology that, that's brought to, I guess, continue a conversation as, as Alan and Rafif put it, um, but continue a conversation and a shared vision of what, what our future could look like, like what, you know, uh, where we could be if, 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 if we weren't in this dystopian nightmare that we're in now, or if we wanted to get out of this dystopian nightmare we're in now, what direction do we take? And I guess we wanted to put out, yeah, like I said, something hopeful and something joyful. So it's like, it doesn't, you know, the world is a bit crap right now, but it doesn't have to be. So, yeah, I guess I guess that's, that's the book.
0: Yeah. Um, I was lucky enough to be at the panel discussion that you had with some of the contributors last week Um and I saw that theme come up time and time again from the different contributors who, you know, um, I think Laniuk touched on it and, um, Claire G. Coleman touched on it as well about the freedom to imagine that comes with fiction in particular. Um, and it gives you this respite from having to justify or, um, explain yourself or, you know, talk specifically, overtly about the racism that your experiences, which is exhausting, just experiencing it.
2: Mm, yeah, hundred percent. I think I think one of the best things about this book, um, as well, is that as, as you heard, um, and you know, thank you for being there. That was. Um, Well, I was saying that was a little uh, taster event. We will be having a launch later in the month. We're just um, in the middle of organising it at the moment, but keep an eye out for details for for the for the proper book launch. Um, But but one of the uh, great things about this um, this book, and I think I did say it at that at that launch you were at, um, is that it was such a it just feels like such a community book. Like you couldn't um, like I mean I guess you could say like one person was in charge, or, you know, Rafi and Alan, like, you know, were were in charge. And they were, but it's more that that just that everybody who contributed to this book, like, is kind of on the same page and is kind of working towards the same goal. And, you know, we're all, like, we're all kind of echoing each other's sentiment. It was such a collective, it's just such a group sentiments I guess book I, I don't know really how to describe it but it's just I think I think it's evident when you when you actually sit down and read read the whole thing is that you can just tell that everybody in there is like yeah you know I've got something to say and or you know here here's where I'm at or and it does allow for everybody to be where they're at I guess but it it is also just we are like all kind of on the same page about what we're doing with this book I guess Without, without there ever being a brief, nobody actually went around and said, okay, here's what we're doing. It's just that every writer who, like, you know, well, even the, even the writers who didn't end up in the, in the anthology, but, um, yeah, everybody came in with a, with a, with a, I guess a collective mindset, which I really love.
0: Yeah, um, I definitely got that sense, um, and I'm super excited to read the book. Um, where can people find out more about the book and buy a copy?
2: Um, so I've been encouraging everybody to head to Amplify Bookstore, um, uh, Amplify Books is a, um, well, I guess it's a BIPOC, uh, bookstore where they only sell books by black individuals and people of color. Um, and this, it's run by just like two lovely, such lovely people that I'm like, I must, like, I must promote this bookstore. But, um, so, so my preferred bookseller would be Amplify Bookstore. You can find it there, or you can go to Fremantle Press's website, um, which I think is probably freemantlepress.com, and <laughs> I should have probably checked that. Um, but but freemantlepress, Press, um, you can, uh, you know, you'll find information there and also be able to purchase it directly there. Um, although, like I said, my preference is I the store, but that's just me. <laughs> um, no, absolutely. Um, yeah, otherwise, yeah, any, anywhere on Jed's social media...
0: Incredible. Um, we're unfortunately running out of time, Hella, but thank you so much for joining us this morning. It's been an absolute pleasure to talk to you about just all the things and especially why people should read fiction by black and black writers and creatives of color. So thank you so much. No, thank you. That was Hela Ibrahim from Jed Press talking to us about the new anthology, uh, Unlimited Futures.
7: 3CR Community Radio,
0: 855 AM. You're on 3CR Tuesday Breakfast Summer Programming. Next up, I'm going to play a song by one of my favourite Indigenous rappers, Baka. Baka is a Maliangappa Bakunji woman from Western New South Wales, and this is her song, King Brown.
8: He call me King Brown Well, if I'm so toxic, why you ringing now? You think you're a man, this is my house I'm sorry, where the fuck is my crown now? I keep it I just only want my land bags to give it He ain't fucking with my mental cause I'm independent When I left him, he said, go ahead, you regret it I ain't regret she cause look at where Sissy's heading Totima ah. my See, it's so hard to manage. I got a back that stab, deeper lays, damage. Got you new, do by checking in. She a fan, bitch. That's only standard. She demanded no respect. You Hand lined up at Santa League, demanding for a. Come for him, I'm coming for his neck I'm so sorry, but it's time to rain down on that bitch no, I ain't sorry, I ask you the baby daddy me. Tears pouring, sorry baby, you can't baby mama me And I'm sitting back here yawning cause I'm living drama free And they keep running back to me cause Bach is the beast Call me King Brown, you ain't fucking with me now Came too the just to go back down Call me King Brown. They all call me mummy I ain't crying over Buddha Unless that Buddha makes me money Give a fuss about these fellas I just find them more funny Hey, get love sick You make me sick to my stomach yeah. Baby, go and get a grip Crying like a little boy Drown, I'm all up on my level, bud Maybe you should level up There's levels to this rap shit And sis went and created one King Kong, now you can call me King Brown Put me on your ringtone And make sure that it ring loud I see in the You'll make me big proud I ain't going back to nothing Too windy for ghost towns Ah, and I ain't saying I don't believe in love I'm just saying I don't believe you dogs Call me King Brown You ain't fucking with me now Came too far just to go back down Call me King Brown Making money out my mouth Yes, yeah, fucking bitch, and this is my fucking house. Call me King Brown. You ain't fucking with me now. Came too far just to go back down. Call me King Brown. Making money in my mouth. That was Barca with King
1: Brown. Tuesday Breakfast would like to thank our friends at Living Koko for their support of the programme. Living Koko puts community first by respecting food sovereignty. Based in Braybrook, they create bean-to-bar chocolates, cacao tea, intentional drinking cacao and cacao mass in bulk. A zero-waste manufacturing space, Living Coco ethically source cacao from over 130 domestic village farms in Samoa. They are at LivingCoco.com or on Facebook and Instagram.
8: You're
0: listening to 3CR Tuesday Breakfast Summer Programming. Like fiction, visual art has always been a way for people of colour to explore their experiences, identities and sense of belonging. Here's a conversation I had with African-Australian artist Forni Salvatore in September 2022. Her show Citizen is still showing at Footscray Community Arts until the 1st of February 2023, so definitely check it out if you haven't already. Foni Salvatore is an African-Australian artist based in Melbourne, whose work explores her diasporic identity. She's on the show this morning to talk to us about her art, her identity, and the current exhibition at Footscray Community Arts, called Citizen, to which she seeks to normalize the place of South Sudanese communities within Australian society. Welcome to the show. Hi, thank
1: you for having me.
0: Thanks so much for joining us. Um, can you start by maybe just giving us a little bit more of a background about yourself and your art?
1: Yeah, uh, so my name is Bonnie and I have been passionate about, about just curating and making things that relate to me. Uh, I usually, so my, my vision is just based on the things that, um, it's just all about the things, it's kind of selfish it's all about the things that relate to me basically and so I I've been seeing I've been going around different galleries in Australia and, and I don't see people like me or I don't see art that reflects like um, to me or yeah so things that don't really engage with me and so that's why I'm curating now I'm trying to um, make the space with other but there's also other artists out there um who are also trying to make the space um for other for diversity and for other people and so that's that's my aim now is just to to curate that space for myself and others
0: yeah you're right um I have seen as well. There's a lot of artwork out there um, by artists of colour who are exploring similar themes to yours, like diasporic experiences and race and intergenerational trauma. Um, You know, I think that's something that's been historically very lacking in the Western world of art, which is usually quite wide. Um, Why do you think that, you know, there's been kind of an uptake on art like this? I think that people
1: were kind of... uh... Waking up, and I think our conversations are very bold now. Like we're able to, see, we're able to um, get together and open up about things, and there are spaces for us to to be more honest. And I think the best thing about about it is honesty. So that's how stories are told, and that's how we're able to see things uh, clearly. And so I think before that maybe there was some type of fear or maybe there's not um people weren't really listening to us and i think the modern world or the time that we're in right now provided that for us we were able to speak freely and to just show ourselves more
0: yeah i think that's a really great point um you know there's space for different people and different artists to show themselves um Which is really, really great. Uh, You know, on your website, for example, you say that you engage and experiment with things that create and diminish identity. Um, Can you tell us a bit more about what this means?
1: For me, I I also feel like when we, when I was just, self, I feel like it's kind of self-absorption when you talk so much about identity and um, that does also isolate you. Uh, in a a country that's diverse as Australia, if you... Not if you, but I personally feel like when I'm just talking so much about things that I identify with, sometimes that could also isolate me. And so I need to... I, I create work that would, you know, just challenge both aspects of, like, showing my identity and also... Just the, the, the part about it where it's just a bit um, you know like I'm not I'm showing too much of like I'm doing too like for example you know how people like racism is such a big deal but curating so much artwork that's, refl- that's around racism kind of takes away the, the your yourself takes away from who you truly are like what you're about because racism doesn't really define you it's just the things that you you have to face and so that's the type of ideas that i had in my in my mind
0: yeah i think that's really interesting um because it is something that's a part of your experience but it like you said it doesn't define you so the art you know will be more complex as well yes yeah. Yeah. Um, so your exhibition Citizen, which is at Footscray Community Arts at the moment, seeks to normalise the place of South Sudanese communities in Australian society. Can you tell us a bit about what led you to create this series?
1: Uh yes. So my my mom owns a hair salon, and she has like the most amazing, interesting customers coming through, and I I hear all these great stories, and I felt sort of, kind of, I, I felt robbed of my own. Stories, and I'm kind of lucky to not have this type of stories because um, I came here so young and I thought that, you know, people need to hear this. No one really sees us for us. Everybody is kind of seeing... Also, around the time that my ideas were forming, there was a lot of negative talk about the community, the South community in Melbourne and maybe in Australia. And so I was thinking, like, no one is seeing these, this gem like this conversation happening no one is viewing us in this vulnerable state and so i just thought i wanted to uh, into you know integrate people more out there and like um push us out of our little comfort zone because we're all in this um um also my mom owns a hair salon and foot care so foot care is very uh if you go to foot care it's like 50 different sections or four different sections of of ethnic groups, which is beautiful. Like, there's harmony and everything, but for someone from outside, it's just, like, there's all these different um, areas. So I felt like a lot of people just so comfortable. As an African, a lot of Africans were comfortable being in that space and being open and vulnerable in those spaces. And I was thinking, you know, we're, we're part of Australia, and most of the conversations were, like, very uh, differentiating themselves from Australians, even though they've been here for so long and and looking at themselves as guests rather than actual citizens of the country, even though they have citizenships. So uh, my thing was just like, we need to be more um, vocal and we need to be more, you know, like we're here, this is our space and we're in this country as well. And yeah, that's just, normalize our faces around so then people are not so um, I feel like when people don't know about, people, about others or there's this, this fear of unknown or ignorance that creates a lot more of problems so yeah. That's just
0: a, yeah, yeah absolutely I mean I'm a migrant to this country as well um, and you know I find the concept of being a citizen really interesting especially in the yeah. Australian context so um, you know, I think it's really cool that you've explored that through your exhibition and your art. Um, you know, what are your thoughts on what citizenship means?
1: Thank you. Um, for me, I, I also struggled with that because I, I remember I was like, what do I call myself? Do I call myself Australian or do I call myself African Australian? Like, is that even a thing or do I call myself the Australian? Um, citizenship for me is just unfortunately it is just paper and it's also paper with a lot of support from the Australian government, I believe. Um, but now I just feel like it's just, I should be able to say I am Australian because whether I go back home or like, if I go back home, I'm a foreigner. I'm, I'm going to be seen as a foreign person in that land. And, and I'm a foreign person in this country as well, but this is the home that I live in and this is a place that I, that I um, envision part of my future in. So I, you kind of have to just deal with it uh, and deal with the fact that you're not going to be fully Australian, but you are a part of Australia. And Australia is becoming more open to others um, in terms of you know immigration the history of immigration, we always had different, there's the different types of groups that came through and they've all faced different challenges and now you're probably like the, you know, the end of that group where it's like, you know, accepting black people more, accepting other um, races more. And it's also challenging because indigenous people don't get this. Like, they don't get uh, the privileges that I have or... Well, i haven't seen i haven't seen them getting like i don't know it's just a very awkward space to be because I am the uh the guest here in some sort of way and I'm also taking um space for the people that own this land so so it's an odd it's a situation that's um it's interesting but it is comfort it's it's based on comfort I am in a comfortable place um
0: and I do have a citizenship yeah Sorry, I'm just <laughs> no I, I totally agree, and I absolutely relate to that um feeling of you know we're guests on somebody else's land um, yeah. but yeah, so it it's it's still you know it is complex and um important to kind of reflect on these different complexities and nuances of identity and citizenship. Um, you know, how has the African diasporic community felt seeing their stories reflected in an exhibition like Citizen? Yes,
1: yeah, so it's interesting because the, uh, the, the younger generation and the older generation are totally different. Like, the people that grew up in Australia and people born in Australia, are, uh, African Australians, are completely different compared to the older generation. The older generation are much more, I feel, maybe timid. Like, they don't want to be out there. They don't want to be... They don't want to do too much that would cause problems. And I'm always confused as to what kind of problems do you you envision? And, like, it's usually, like, I don't know. It just sounds, like, dramatic. Like, they think it's some sort of, like, oh, yeah, the government's going to come and take this internship away or something. I don't know. But it's just the... The younger, the older generation, it's harder to. Well, majority of the people, the subjects that I painted were the older generation because they really wanted to support me and were happy to help me and all that kind of stuff. But when I wanted to share more of their messages in written in written words, they were more um, reluctant because it's just they didn't want to give too much out, and I understand that. But it's also, it's just like. There's this thing where it's like if you do anything like oh they're like it's not my country you have to like be um, cautious and and also yeah it's just a, it's a very it's an odd uh, group of people whereas the younger generation when they saw the work they were very like um, they were like yeah yeah like I see this I see it with my parents I see it with my family members they're very they they act like. um Foreigners in this country and and all that kind of stuff. So I can relate more to the younger generation because that's so the people that I um, we had the same challenges. Yeah. But the older generation as well, they do appreciate it. The people that came through and they saw the art, they were really um, they were proud and they're like, "This is amazing! This is great work!" But beforehand, they were kind of just cautious. But yeah. yeah, the younger generation are very much into it and they're very um, outspoken.
0: Definitely. Is- and I, I think that caution of, from the older generations really speaks to, you know, generations of migration and how they've been treated. Um, yeah. And so it's really interesting, the shift in that in the younger generation. Um, and yeah. I think it reflects the change you're talking about, um, yeah. which is hopeful. Yeah. Um, So, can you tell our listeners where they can go and see Citizen, and how they can keep up with your work?
1: Yeah. Um, so, Footscray Arts Centre, the amazing community centre, uh, is located in Footscray. I'm sure you can Google the address. I'm not really sure what the address is, and it is open Tuesday to Friday to Sunday, I believe, and it is closed on the holidays public holidays, closed on Mondays. Fusker Art Centre is, like, Fusker Art Centre is, is, is like, has been so great, and, like, I'm so pleased by them, and, like, they've just been amazing. Um, It is open 9.30am to 5pm. My show is in the entrance entrance gallery, um, and it's playing alongside another art show, another um, exhibition called Interplay. But yeah, go see that as well. It's amazing. Um, you can you can follow me on Instagram, which is P-H-O underscore Ken, K-N-E, which is uh, P-O underscore me or phony. And my website is phonyart.com.
0: So amazing. That. Um, we'll thank also you. link to that in our show notes later today for any listeners who do want to follow Phony. Um, that's all we have time for this morning. But thank you so much for joining us and having this um, great conversation.
1: Thank you so much.
0: So that was um, artist uh, Phony Salvatore, um, whose work Citizen is currently exhibiting Woods Great Community Arts. We'll be right back after this.
2: It's summer programming on 3CR, and there's so many reasons to stay tuned. Shorts, features, documentaries, new and unusual music, and highlights from 2022. To check out our summer grid, go to 3cr.org.au forward slash summer specials.
0: Up next is a song by another incredible African-Australian artist, Sampa the Great. Sampa is a Zambian singer, rapper, and songwriter, and this is her song, Let Me Be Great, featuring Beninese singer-songwriter Ajali
8: kidjo Yeah ach,
5: ach, 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 ach. K, k, Many men let to get on devices. Tell the story, leaving at the crisis. Maybe, maybe uh, quite shocked to be the The hunter should be looking at my boss. I'm lying, I'm king. Man, I'm balls. I'm feeling it. But the course of what is the cause that I'm killing? I'm dealing with my heroes. all she on know my boss. When I was young, they knew it was on my goals. Now it's three places. There will never be another me, nigga. So I figured i could cut my own past stories. I'm an exhibit on my name. I'm Sammy, I'm Tambo, I'm Eve, I'm Shamba, I'm Remember when you doubt and fear You had your voice and a song in your ear You can time travel any month, any year You're the greatest, yeah, I told you Cause it's what you need to hear, young Tumblebee Ever and ever and never ever and never I'ma be great. You can never fail, you where know even when you fall, you prevail. And you can never listen with the lesson, and I've been pressing. Some. It's not about impressing, I'm expressing. And every pep I pay still stressing. What Simon said, stay in your lane if I stayed out be playing with them little wine books. Singing two crop books still ignoring The fact that a the queen named Florence said that you can conquer any hill. That's how I feel, that's how I feel. My vision, I'm impeccable. Every strain gained, every stage detectable. Look into the future full vision, no spectacle. It's legacy, it's what I see. Huh, remember when there's doubt, fear You would have your voice and the sign in your ear You can time travel any month, any year You the greatest yeah, I told you Cause it's what you need to hear Yeah, I'm gonna be yeah.
0: Let Me Be Great by Sample the Great featuring Anjali Kidjo. You're listening to Radical Radio 3CR.
1: When I was new to Melbourne, I found a Food Not Bombs flyer on the road. I had like this fist with a carrot and carrots are my favourite vegetable. Yeah, I think they were asking for help doing stuff and I got in touch.
7: We, I guess, rescue food.
4: That would otherwise go to
7: waste.
0: I like the aspect of sharing food and not making anyone feel obligated to pay anything for it.
1: We make a real point at Food Not Bombs of involving everyone who wants to be
0: involved in whichever part they want to be involved
1: in.
7: For more information, go to fnbmelb.noblogs.com Food Not Bombs is a 3CR supporter.
0: You're on 3CR Tuesday Breakfast Summer Programming. In December 2022, just after the state elections, I spoke with socialist candidate Nawi Jimenez about how race and class play out during election time. Here's our conversation. Nowy is a Mexican-Australian socialist and community activist who believes that racism, indigenous oppression, climate change, the housing crisis, and many other big challenges we face as a society today are grounded in the destructive and competitive nature of capitalism. She's been uh, involved in the Campaign Against Racism and Fascism, organized campaigns against far-right, neo-Nazi, and Islamophobic groups, worked with young leaders of the Sudanese community to counter racist hysteria and so much more now he's on the show this morning to talk about the recent elections and the role of race and class when it comes to electing new parties welcome to the show Nawi.
6: hey how's it going
0: good how are how's you this morning
6: good? yeah really good i'm excited to be here
0: And we're very excited to have you. Um, Can you start by maybe telling us a little bit about your previous work, especially with um, the campaign against racism and fascism? What sort of led you to join this campaign?
6: Yeah, so I joined C.A.R.S. in 2015, and it started as a uh, campaign organizing group um, in opposition to the Reclaim Australia movement that was forming um, in Melbourne. Um, and Reclaim Australia formed, I guess, uh, through a lot of Islamophobic ideas around um, Muslim immigration. And one of the things that made me join CARF was really um, seeing the direct connection that um, the far-right this movement was having uh, with mainstream politics. Um, so, you know, you had Pauline Hansen in parliament, you know, kind of like come in with um, the burqa and, uh, you know, you also had her table emotions of, like, it's okay to be white. Um, and I think that, that you know, Islamophobia and that racism really fed um, the far-right in, in Melbourne. Um, and really worryingly, in my opinion, was the fact that a lot of, um, you know, kind of uh, mum and dad racists were kind of, like, joining um, Reclaim Australia and were joining that Islamophobic movement. So CARP was formed with the um, direct. Uh, idea of trying to sever the links between this kind of more soft and core racist from these, you know, far-right neo-Nazis like Neil Erickson, who, you know, thought that Hitler should be taught in schools and, you know, a picture of him should be hung in schools as well. So we thought it was really important to try and disorganize that movement
0: yeah absolutely, and I love that you use the phrase mum and dad um <laughs> racist because I think that that um really describes that demographic really well um you know, as a young person of color, what has your experience been with race in politics?
6: um well, there's definitely not enough people of color in politics um I think a lot of the times uh the way we i guess Encounter um, different political issues, it's very easy to try and remove um, the very complex nature I think of of Australia how it's been built and I think that that is often carried into politics you know the fact that um you know like the whole structure of parliament is pretty um non representative i guess of of the broader community um, is is really true and I think for well, I mean, I guess in, in Brunswick, you know, you had forums where um, the only people on stage at the start, like there was a public transport forum that was organized um, by, by a group in, in Brunswick and they only allowed to have, um, yeah, candidates from parties that were already represented. So they only had reason, labor and um, and greens. And it was, you know, an all male, all white panel in that moment, um, which was pretty unfortunate. Um, So, yeah, you know, you continue to see, I think, at times, um,
0: that form of inequality. Yeah, definitely. And I noticed as well in the state election um, that a lot of the people campaigning for right-wing parties, especially in Footscray, where I voted, um, were people of colour. So there was this Mm. sort of um, disproportionate representation, because as you're saying, you know, a lot of uh, politicians and panels and, you know what we see generally in politics—it's white men, or at the most, white mm. women. So I was interested in how um, you know the people of color were being represented in in this way, um, mm. and you know possibly being—they were meant to appeal to the African and Vietnamese and Indian and other people of colors um, communities in Footscray and the West. You know, have you seen a rise in people of color becoming involved with the riot? and com- campaigning in suburbs like Footscray?
6: Yeah, absolutely. I think it's it's a pretty interesting um, phenomenon, I think, happening at the moment. And like, you know, for example, the Liberal Party for a very long time has been trying to get into the Sikh community, the Vietnamese community, for example, in Brunswick, you know, one of the candidates for the Liberal Party was um, part of the Vietnamese community. Um, and yeah, like I think, You know, one of one of the real things is that, you know, um, I think that the Liberal Party and also kind of like far right parties like the UAP, I guess, do have a bit more of an edge um, at the moment because their whole kind of like political framework is broader. Right. So they say freedom, 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 which is about, you know, kind of like having a lot of, um, yeah, kind of like libertarian positions, um, you know, a real hatred for Daniel Andrews for um the lockdowns, and they try and build that kind of support um, in opposition to the lockdowns, so they've gone into you know small businesses of um, you know kind of like uh, any kind of community um, and say, Well, you're a small business, you were hurt by the lockdowns. um you should you know support this party because we're against um you know the lockdowns um, and they really hurt small businesses. the government doesn't care about you, um so all of a sudden you have you know people of color you know having posters of the UAP. And, in the businesses without really realizing the broader frameworks that these um, parties have you know um so i think it's yeah it's definitely something that's happening more and more
0: yeah absolutely and it's a little bit um disheartening to see uh you know what do you think that is it what we can do as a broader community to kind of counter this sort of misinformation that Um, you know, communities that are generally quite vulnerable are being kind of, you know, peddled and so are therefore getting involved and even campaigning for um, these parties?
6: Mm. Well, I think the, the starting point is to, you know, kind of point out to the real reason why, you know, inequalities exist. And I think that we have to have a systemic understanding of that. And I think, you know, there's lots of really um impressive like um community groups actually that have um already started kind of like writing their own leaflets about what the um UAP was about, you know, um in all of these different um languages. So there was a really awesome um yeah like community campaign. I think it was in um Thomas Down um around that. So I think there's small groups that can um be built from the community to kind of like, you know, letterbox about that. Um but I think the broader kind of like um uh, I guess the, the broader um, thing that we need to do realistically is is start to combat these politics um, in, in, you know, the mainstream. So it's about, you know, any time that the far-right organizes, it's about also, you know, taking a stand against those politics, whether it's through, um, you know, protests, whether it's through, um, you know, kind of like community um, organizing groups, but it's really about saying... If we really want to get rid of these ideas, there needs to be a political alternative that is created that actually says, um, you know, like uh, the truth about why inequality exists, which is, you know, the fact that the entire system is geared towards, you know, creating more wealth for the rich and the vast majority of us, you know, um, have to create this wealth and we don't get to access it and we don't get to decide what we do with it. And then, you know, racism is used to divide us in order to not be organized enough to get, you know, actually control over over the resources that we create as a society so I think you know there's one angle which is tackling it through the community and you know having a lot of information campaigns but then the other angle is you know the real big fight that I think we have on our hands which is about actually challenging the system
0: yeah definitely and you know that's a great point about how the divisions in society really keep the wealth where it is um, and keep things as they are you know it stops um, grassroots change because it stops people from you know coming together. Um, I know this is sort of a big topic but another thing that I was interested in especially in the recent state elections is the intersections of both race and class um, and how that plays out. Um, I feel like class is not a very talked about thing in Australia but it's informing a lot of what we're doing and how we're voting um can you just give us your thoughts on how you think those intersections play out in politics today
6: Mm, yeah i mean absolutely we had a huge example with um you know the um flemington uh i guess flood that happened recently where you have you know a wall built you know a little less of what 10 years ago um to stop this you know um you know billion dollar Industry from being flooded so that the races can happen, and you know, ten years later you have um, you know incredible rain that uh, happens because of climate change. And then it floods um, working class families' homes. So I think that there's definitely um, a lot of um, divisions being shown with that. But I think broadly speaking, um, I think yeah, you know, we're we're living through uh, the beginnings of a quite um, serious economic global economic crisis that is going to be very much felt um, by working class people. And I think that it's important to remind ourselves that actually working class people are not uh, your caricature of like um, a white male construction worker wearing a hard hat, wearing floral. Actually, the working class is incredibly diverse. You know, it's, uh, you know, people from all different industries who are, uh, you know, black, white, Asian, indigenous, like, you name it. The working class is so diverse, you know, Um, and we're the ones who are paying for this crisis, you know. We continue to go through government after government that gives tax concessions to um, the rich instead of funding um, services like health care. I think particularly in the West, you know, um, the main campaign, at least for Victorian socialists, was around services, you know, the fact that Werribee, for example, can take... um, you know, 50% of pregnant women to deliver babies. Like, that's an outrage, you know. Everyone knows that you can't go to Werribee Hospital if you live there, because it's too busy. So, you know, there's a battle around hospitals. There's a battle about transport. Um, and, yeah, you know, I think these are class issues that um, aren't being addressed um, by by the governments because it's easier to kind of, you know, do, I don't know, level-crossing removals in Brunswick, you know. Um, so there's a real lack of focus, I think, in working class areas um, in, in Melbourne.
0: Um, Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And I feel like there's not even enough sort of conversation around acknowledging um, the class issues. I feel like um, there's a bit of a taboo around class more than race. um, And so Mm. the intersections, which are really important, get a little bit ignored.
6: Yeah, absolutely. Because I think it's also about saying, you know, like, one of the ways of also, like, challenging um, racism is also through, um, you know, like, acknowledging class and also the way of organizing, I think, ordinary people is also about, you know, trying to uh, combat, you know, racist ideas in society. Um, so I think um, neither one, I think, is is more or less important than the other. Um, but it's also about acknowledging the connection. I think that racism plays in our society to, um, yeah, to exploit or- ordinary people um, and class also being, you know, a central, um, well, a central category, I think, one one which dictates so much about your life.
0: Yeah, definitely. Um, how are you hoping to make a change in these areas, you know, in your with your work with the socialists and, you know, hopefully by the next election, we'll see something different?
6: Mm. Well, I mean, I think one of the things that Victorian Socialist is, is trying to do is change the way that people perceive how politics happens. So I think a lot of people feel like, you know, every four years you get to vote for someone and then they enact change. Where we're, What we're trying to do is say, actually, um, even if we did get one person elected, two people elected, um, that's not going to be enough to transform uh, the political current um, that is, you know, happening today. We need people to be organized in their workplaces, organized um you know um, protesting, organizing political campaigns to demand climate justice, you know organizing campaigns uh, to combat racism, organizing campaigns for abortion rights you know to demand safe legal abortion on demand we need to be building these movements outside of parliament to actually force politicians to to really you know rule in the interests of of ordinary people and I think um, that's what we're going to be doing. You know, I think, yeah, like you were talking about, the far right is definitely on on the up at the moment, and we're seeing victories of the far right all around Europe. And I think that Australia is also no, no different when it comes to, you know, kind of, you know, our, you know, uh, discussing refugee um, policies and, you know, kind of like border regimes that we have. So, yeah, there's going to be lots of campaigns that we're going to be organizing for refugee rights, um, for climate justice. Um, to create stronger movement to, yeah, really kind of push for that change because we, we think that actually has to happen from below and it can't happen from above.
0: Yeah, and um, I hope that, you know, um, communities that this will affect are able to see that it is in their interest and, you know, mm-hmm. for us to be working together is definitely in everybody's interest um, rather than, you know, the small business kind of rhetoric. Um, that would be really great to see. At a, at a kind of community grassroots level. Um, if people want to know more about you and support your work, where can they find you and follow you?
6: Yeah, um, so we have um, our webpage, which is Um We're also on Instagram, which I believe is Big Sock. Um, and also I have a yeah Instagram page, which is now in for Brunswick. Um, and we're going to be yeah, posting a lot about um, upcoming actions. Um, at the moment, uh, there's, uh, discussions about uh, organizing more uh, climate uh, rallies, and in particular, um, there's a pretty concerning, um, you know, uh, effort happening to criminalize a lot of um, climate, um, you know, protesters. We've seen in New South Wales that uh, Violet Coco, who's you know an uh, extinction rebellion activist, she's she's been recently sentenced um, to, I think it was like at least um, eight months uh, without parole. Uh, for for blocking an intersection in Sydney. And, you know, in Victoria also recently there was anti protesting laws that um went through about mm-hmm. criminalizing uh protesters that were protesting um in native logging uh sites um in forests in Victoria. So there's a real, you know, kind of like uh, yeah, push by, you know, governments um in in Australia to to oppose the yeah, protesters who are, you know, very clearly seeing that the climate destruction is is pretty severe so i think that there's that is a really important um issue that that we're going to be organizing around
0: absolutely and you know here at tracia we do follow these issues and um it's been very disturbing to see the criminalization and, you know, just the general response to peaceful protests um, and the disregard for climate change, as always. Um, Now, that's all we have time for this morning. Unfortunately, I'd love to keep chatting, but hopefully we can have you back on the show at some point. Um, Absolutely. But thanks so much for joining us. No, thank you for joining us and talking us through this very um, big issue. Um, It's been a pleasure.
3: Do you have a few children's
6: picture books or footy boots that your kids have outgrown but want to find them a loving home? Well, drop them in at 3CR and put them in the books and boots bin. Books and Boots regularly sends pre-loved children's picture books and sports footwear to remote and
5: regional First Nations communities and children across the country. Contact us at Books and Boots or go to the website www.booksandboots.org.au
2: We love a good book.
1: Catch the podcast via the 3CR website or on your favourite podcast app.
0: You're on 3CR Tuesday Breakfast Summer Programming. That brings us to the end of today's Summer Programming Show. We listen back to conversations I've had across 2022 about race, including racism at work, how race affects art and literature, and the importance of race during election time. Thank you for joining me this morning. Keep it locked to 3CR, and we'll be back with live shows from the 17th of January.
2: 3CR would like to thank our sponsors, Earth Greetings, cards that connect, care, and celebrate, support wildlife and habitat with every purchase. Inspired by nature, giving back to the planet. Learn more at earthgreetings.com.au
0: 3 our Breakfast would like to thank the New International Bookshop, Melbourne's independent radical bookstore and venue, for their financial support of this program. You can find Nibs in the basement of Trades Hall in Victoria Street, Carlton. And while you're there, check out Radical Coffee,
8: a worker-run cooperative cafe in the courtyard. Keep up to date with upcoming events at nibs.org.au.